Hello everyone and welcome to Sweating the Small Stuff, a show where we sweat over the often overlooked experiences of the people we get to interact with every day. Today, I, your host Cameron Buzajamari, have the incredible fortune of speaking with neuroscience research affiliate and handler of Samson the Service Dog, Joey Ramp. Joey, would you like to introduce yourself and what we will be discussing today? Sure, I'd love to. Um, first, I'd like to say thank you very much for having an interest in this topic. Um, I'm Joey Ramp. I am the handler of Samson, the service dog, who is the face and the ambassador for service dogs in science. I'm a neuroscience research affiliate at Rhodes Lab at the Beckman Institute for Advanced Science and Technology at the University of Illinois. I also advocate for service dog handlers in science and STEM and try and make sure that policies and guidelines are inclusive to help service dog handlers access opportunities in STEM. And first, let me say, I'm very excited to have you here. Um, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, a lot of the things we like to tackle on Swaying the Small Stuff have to do with STEM and applying it to the real world. And when I first learned about you and your advocacy work that you do with Samson, it blew my mind because I, I believe before we started, you mentioned STEM is, it's supposed to be something that's about truth. It's about going after and understanding what the foundations of our world really are. And to me, there was something about people with disabilities being part of STEM that just seemed like something you would implicitly assume. And as I learned more about your journey, I, I really wanted to bring you on because this seems like something that is, it adds a lot of valuable context to something I imagine a lot of our listeners really enjoy and probably don't even know is a issue. So thank you again so much for joining us. And with that in mind, would you like to get us started on a little more about what you and Samson do? I would love to. When I started in my my journey in neuroscience, uh, I, I did so after an accident that left me with a brain injury and some mobility limitations. And um, no one could really tell me what was what was going on I, I was having some cognitive decline, et cetera. So I decided to go into neuroscience in my mid forties. I was um, a service dog handler already at that time. And Samson, he helps me with mobility. He helps me with balance. He helps pick up things off the floor. And he also does some medical alert uh, when my environment gets a little too stressful. But I didn't anticipate going into neuroscience was the fact that service dog handlers were not included in the laboratory experience. They were excluded. They were they were told that um, a service dog was not allowed in any laboratory at all. And I, I was shocked with that. And I, I, I thought, well, you know, there's got to be a way. I've always been a problem solver. And in discussions with some lab managers at the community college where I started, we worked out to Samson would wear personal protective equipment, which is PPE, which would be the same as I was required to wear um, for safety, like a lab coat or or um, I wear gloves and, and goggles. And Samson would wear a lot of the same things. He wears a lab coat. He does wear eye um, protective goggles and he wears boots to protect his feet. Could you tell us what kind of dog Samson is, just so we can paint this excellent picture of both you and Samson in the lab with Samson wearing his mini lab coat and you wearing your proper one? Oh, of course. Samson is a extremely fluffy, white, golden retriever, and he's got this 
incredibly gregarious attitude every single day of his life is the best day ever. He wakes up with the attitude of today is the best day ever. When he wears his his goggles and his lab coat and his boots, he prances along and and um, he he has this smile on his face that's you know very common with with golden retrievers, but it just exudes happiness. Anyone who walks by me cannot help but smile because Samson is just full of fluffy happiness all the time. And is Samson there with you now? He's always with me. He's with me 24 seven. I'm going to count this as a win. This is our second guest appearance of an excellent animal on the show. I have a cat that has made passing guest appearances where she knocks against our microphone. But more importantly, I was hoping you might also be able to fill us in on when you first met Samson and why you needed Samson. Well, I was in in an accident and had 23 broken bones and a brain injury. And I went through like two years of surgery. What I didn't expect to happen was because of the brain injury, I started to decline cognitively. I started losing language. I started uh, panic and anxiety. And it got to a point where I... I couldn't understand what was happening. I felt completely hopeless. And I decided one day after losing my job and not being able to leave my house for three years that I was going to end my life. Um, I noticed a book that was in my office that was about a golden retriever who had helped a veteran regain their life. And I started reading the book and it, it provided me, it gave me some hope that maybe I could have a life as well. I started looking into going into neuroscience, but I knew that I was going to need some assistance. And that's when I got my first service dog. And um, Theo helped me. I, I always say Theo brought me out of the darkness and Samson keeps me in the light. Theo provided service for me for three years and then Samson took over. You know, he keeps me independent. He allows me to lead a productive, independent, happy and healthy life. The the reason. I need a service dog is because I um, the brain injury caused some vertigo, so I do have some balance and some mobility limitations from a, and I have some nerve damage down my leg. So he helps me balance and brace, picks things up off the floor for me, um, which he's not allowed to do in the laboratory, by the way. And then he um, also, you know, he can find exits. He can also do medical alert for me. That I must say that is an absolutely amazing story. And yet it's only the beginning of the story. I'm very grateful that you were able to find this help. And I imagine it can be very difficult for a lot of people to have that presence of mind to seek out that help. Once you started down this path, it's in just as incredible to hear your story of wanting to, to pursue STEM and neuroscience. To continue that conversation, what, what motivated you to want to study this field? And when I was first diagnosed with PTSD, they they thought that the brain injury and the cognitive decline and uh, and all of that was just just PTSD. And it came out, you know, it it became more apparent later as things progressed that it was more related to the brain injury. But um, no one could really tell me what was happening in my own brain and and what to do about it. Uh, PTSD at the time, we, you know, we're talking, you know, 10, 12 years ago, nobody talked about anyone having PTSD other than combat veterans. And I have never been in the military. 
So to be diagnosed with PTSD was extremely confusing. I was always given this, uh, the top 10 things you need to know about PTSD or the top 10 things you need to know about brain injury recovery. Um, but that's all the information I was given. So I decided by going into neuroscience, I could study the brain and I could figure out what was happening in my own head. And that's how I ended up going into the field of neuroscience. The one thing I can I can say is um, being newly disabled when I'm in my you know mid 40s, there there is a lot that you don't understand about the world of disabilities. And so when I first decided to go to college, I knew I'm I'm going to be accompanied by a service dog. I had no idea really what that per- what that picture was going to look like. But I had read this success story, so I knew it was possible. Well, then I was directed to the disability office, and it was there that I learned that there were actually accommodations and um, things that could make uh, make just college in general more inclusive to uh, allow people with disabilities equal opportunity to be successful. I was placed, you know, with some accommodations, um, and that that helped with the process. But over the course of of several years, a lot of those accommodations, they didn't understand what it was like for people with PTSD. And so, I worked with the first the community college and then the University of Illinois in trying to help establish better accommodations um, for, say, testing or. Um, you know, placement of someone with PTSD or placement in a in a room with with someone with a service dog, so that it it made the learning experience more about the learning and not about having to maneuver your environment constantly. Yeah, I could see how starting off that would seem like it would maybe not seem obvious, but seem like a place that there should already be that kind of support. I did. Uh, I. Um, I think, you know, as you mentioned earlier, when I entered, I, I really did think that, okay, there are disability offices, there are things in place already, I'm going to be able to just go in and learn. And um, with every step I made, I ran some kind of obstacle or some kind of barrier. And I constantly had to advocate. And I, I mean, it was a consistent thing every semester. I had to make some different alteration or make some, you know, I had to start by having communications with professors and I had to um, just establish all kinds of different things that were not already in place. The further I got into everything, this type of advocacy got a lot more complex. But when I transferred from the community college into the University of Illinois, I thought, I really honestly thought, okay, I am home free because the University of Illinois is considered uh, well, one, it was the um, it was the pioneer back in 1948 for disability accommodations. They were the very first, and they had great reputation for being able to accommodate students with disabilities. the The disability office, Dres, does a phenomenal job, but they go up against the administration at the university. I mean, universities have a tendency to talk about diversity and inclusion, and uh, especially University of Illinois, they talk a lot about, you know, they are very proud of their disability accommodations. But if you talk to people in the DRES office, most of their time is spent going against the administration 
advocating for their students. When a student comes in and they need something, a lot of times it's just, it's not that cut and dry. And um, it takes a lot of different maneuvers. I was hoping you might be able to tell us what was it like coming to the decision that as you were going through these steps, as you were going through this process, figuring out that this is not just your journey. This is probably the journey of many, many other people who want to contribute to this field, to the field of STEM. And that there's an opportunity here for people to be able to either learn from your experiences or for you to support them as they move through this process. I don't know that there was any one point in that entire process where I went, okay, I need to start advocating for other people. At first, the first couple of years, I'll, I'll say it was just a matter of just trying to figure out what I needed to do next. But then it was about two or three years in, especially I think when I hit the University of Illinois and I started getting a lot of pushback and it took me almost a year to get into my very first laboratory class because there just were no combinations in place. Um, I was actually told at one point that I needed to change my major because a service dog would never make it in neuroscience because I couldn't do labs. So. At, I think that was at the point, that was a turning point for me to say, you know, I really want to change the landscape for those people who follow me because I knew I had been getting messages from uh, service dog training organizations and, uh, you know, somebody was trying to go into a science lab, what type of um, advice would I have for them or do I have some tips? And then running a, a Facebook page for my service dogs I started getting emails and messages and, and direct messages, people asking for advice. And that's when I started saying, you know, there I'm not the only one here and I want to change what this looks like. It was so incredibly hard. Every single step was so hard. And I, like I said earlier, I being in my 40s and after running, you know, I've run companies, when somebody would put a barrier up, I would say, you know, I know that there's got to be a solution here. So let's talk about this. I'm comfortable speaking to faculty and administration because I am older and because I I run I ran a you know multi-million dollar company. But someone who's 18 to 25, they may not feel that comfortable. When someone says, No, you can't do this, they go, Oh, okay. And what happens is they end up leaving STEM completely, or they end up leaving college completely. And I didn't want that to happen. But at the same time, I can imagine how nerve-wracking it must be because at the end of the day it's one thing to be in an organization it's another thing to be in an academic place where a lot of the times people can just more or less say no this we just can't do anything about it right now because either they don't have the resources and time or they just don't see why it's necessary when things have been more or less going along as they consider to be fine for however long it has been going on yeah and there's there's you know this that conversation right there is kind of multifaceted because even though I had um, I've done presentations, I've made pitches for all kinds of uh, research and development. I also am living with a disability that's new, and that disability is brain injury, you know, body limitations, and also PTSD, which makes it very difficult sometimes to communicate or to be in an anxiety provoking um, situation. So even though I had done that in my previous life, doing so while I was going to school um, could potentially cause 
a panic attack or um, intense anxiety to where I couldn't leave my house or even take a test um, or cause dissociation, which means that, you know, that's kind of like walking amnesia, which is very common for people with a, a complex, more complex form of PTSD that I have. So I always had to try and uh, protect my environment, but yet I was still having to go up against this administration. What you're saying about, you know, the administration and the college and everything, having this very set mindset is very true. A lot of times they would just say, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. And I mean, that really became very apparent farther in um, when I started trying. I was I was absolutely barred from taking one lab class that um, utilized uh, la live rodents to do just some anxiety testing. They would not let me in with a service dog. And they they the reasoning was because it would cause the um, animals to be overly stressed. but. So I went out and, and got independent funding of $50,000. I got a lab and a PI, uh, which is a um, primary investigator who ran the lab. And we developed a study to try and determine whether the presence of a service dog in the room would actually have an effect. But we had to get approval through the university. They denied us three times, telling us that there was no scientific merit to that study that uh, service dog handlers would never be seeking these opportunities, um, et cetera. It was just, it was the craziest thing because it was such an easy study to run. So, I mean, that's one example of, we never did get to run that study because the university just put their foot down and said, absolutely not, we don't want the truth. And I'm sorry, I'm going to end up going on a bit of a tangent here, but this, I feel like what you just demonstrated in a way actually is exciting to me in not in that you met this adversity, but in the way you saw this problem and realized there was actually a whole different opportunity here to be studied. On the one hand, you have this study where you had to be participating in it for your class and you needed to study these rats and they said no because the dog will stress them out. But then you took the scientific approach. You said to yourself, would rats actually be stressed out by a lab animal? Would the would incorporating my experience into this setting, bringing a new perspective into the setting, change the way we think about lab design and lab experimentation and understanding the subjects we are testing every day? And that that is in a way what I think is so beautiful about your work. Every single time we try to be more inclusive of other people we add that diversity of perspective. We find these new opportunities to study things that we priorly thought we had established or understood fairly well. And on the one hand, it is absolutely awful to see that they would keep you from being included in that class. But at the same time, it's so fascinating to see your solution to their problem. And what out of that adversity, you were able to create a completely new but equally relevant thing that needed to be studied. Yes, um, you know, I, I agree. And I did. I really thought, I thought, okay, if I am able to, to do this research, it's a, it's a very easy study. And we would be able to provide some empirical data that could potentially 
open more opportunities. Um, I, you know, and I also have to, as a scientist, I also have to say it might also do the opposite. Uh, we may do, we may find out that there's, you know, that it absolutely will stress them out, but that also would give us the data that we needed to say, okay, well, this lab environment would be an acceptable environment to have a service dog and this lab environment would not. So we would have some concrete evidence that says one way or the other. Um, a lot of researchers argue uh, that they have already established that because of the what they call the prey predator paradigm, which um, they use primarily they use cats and they expose the, the uh, rodents to um, sometimes directly to the cats or or you know urine soaked bedding or something to, to to measure the reactivity in in the rodents, but we were only able to find one study that used canines, and that was the uh, scent, canine scent. And um, what they found in that study was that uh, rodents had less of a stress reactivity to the presence of a altered or, or castrated or spayed canine than that to a male human experimenter. I really appreciate that from two angles. One, going back to something you said earlier in our discussion, science is very much about truth and seeking these, I guess, ground truths, these understandings of the world. And this is you going back to say, we're fundamentally trying to understand this basic truth. And at the same time, you're seeing there are not enough experiments that confirm your specific circumstance. And there's too much, I, I guess, the transitive property of simply applying because animals understand behave in this context in this way in this other context they must behave similarly yeah, i i would say that um but i mean when we as scientists when we talk about running an experiment one of the one of the biggest things we we have to look at are the variables and you try to only change one variable at a time and um to see that effect is there some sort of effect if you change one variable? Because if you change you know, two or three variables, that could have a completely different outcome. And that's the same thing here. You're talking about cats, which, I mean, the literature clearly states that, that, you know, that cats do cause a reactivity. But with the one study with canines, it says it, the, it, says it doesn't, um, basically compared to a, a male experimenter. So, um, you know, they are replying, okay, well, the cats have already caused you know, this reactivity, so we are just going to assume that these canines will. And in science, you can't make assumptions, especially when you can design an experiment to show what that particular variable is going to, um, you know, what kind of reactivity that's going to cause. So uh, I, I am still frustrated that um, this study has not been allowed to move forward. And even, you know, we have a lot, we've had universities contact us, my PI directly and myself, ask for the data that we were unable to collect because they have students that are coming into these environments and they want to do it right. I think that's great to hear both because it shows that there is this need. There are other people who are learning about your work and are very interested. As I understand it, you do have an idea for the need for university-wide guidelines to accommodate individuals with disabilities. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I have a, a successful working solution. Both of my service dogs were the very first to be included in some of the um, core course labs, which are the like the general chemistry one and two, the organic chemistry, general biologies, um, basically undergraduate coursework. But also Samson is the very first service dog, to my knowledge, across the nation to ever be included into a neuroscience research lab. And we've been working successfully there um, for three years. And so what I am proposing is that we do develop a guideline or even a policy. Policies take much more time. Guidelines um, can be added to service dog policies that basically outline what are appropriate accommodations for someone with a service animal entering a lab. For instance, to provide a skill checklist for service dog handlers to, so that they know entering these labs, their dog has to wear the PPE for that class. They have to be able to lay under a bench for up to four hours at a time, um, not be reactive to emergency situations like sirens and fire or uh, explosions even, and to help faculty understand the placement, like for instance, in, a, in an organic chemistry lab or a research lab, place the dog and the handler on the opposite side of the room than where the fume hood is. Have a place where the service dog can rest, where there are not chemicals above them. Also, there's little things like providing reagents, balances, and things closer to their workstation so that they don't have to go all the way across the lab to retrieve them. These little tiny things would make all undergraduate coursework inclusive, and they would potentially open up research opportunities. And it's, it's, a, it's an easy fix. I mean, I've worked with a couple of universities who now have these guidelines in place. And I've gotten emails back saying in the beginning, you know, a lot of the faculty members were reluctant. But now they see it in practice and it's they see the importance of it now and they see how it's a minimal change to a laboratory environment, if at all. And what you've done is open up the doors for this entire population of people. That That is incredibly promising to hear, and I'm very glad to see that your work is getting recognition and a lot of buy-in. And I realize we might be um, a little short on time, but I was hoping you'd be able to share with us where we can follow along and see you and Samson and learn more about your work. Yes, thank you. I have a company called Empowerability Consulting, which is just empowerabilityconsulting.com. Um, all of my contact information is there, and there is a lot of information in there already that outlines some of the um, inclusive things that you could do in a laboratory. You can follow Samson's journey along on Twitter at Samson underscore dog. Uh, we are also on Instagram at Samson underscore service underscore dog. We are on Facebook, Samson the service dog and Theo the service Labrador. You can also reach me at the university. A university email is ramp2 at illinois.edu. I would love to talk to anyone who would be interested in conducting this study. I'll come to you. Thank you again, Joey, for sharing this incredibly valuable context. If you are interested in finding any of the resources she mentioned, I'll make sure to include links on the show notes or in our website, smallstuff.show. I particularly recommend you check out the Twitter, Samson is adorable, and the kind of resources that Joey shares there are invaluable. If you are a person living with disability and interested in pursuing a career in STEM, I strongly recommend you check out the resources that Joey's presented. 
If you know someone who's living with disability and an interest in STEM, please do share this interview with them. Do share all the Joey's resources with them. I'm sure that they will find all of this incredibly valuable. Before we go, Joey, I would like to give you one last big thank you for taking the time to share all this valuable context. Thank you very much for your interest in this very important topic. I appreciate it. No problem at all. And I've been your host, Cameron Buzharjumeri, reminding you from movies to media to the world around us, it's details like these that truly make it worth sweating the small stuff. Mm-hmm.